We're in Jude, Jude 12 through 16. That's verses 12 through 16 because there's only one chapter of the book of Jude. Uh, last week we talked about how Jude was a brother of Jesus and he wrote this letter to unknown recipients, unknown to us. Uh, and the purpose was to encourage us and them to contend for the faith. That word contend is a word that comes from wrestling or boxing, so it means to really uh, get down and dirty and fight. Fight for the, the faith that was once delivered to God's people. Uh, that means the, the truth of the gospel and, and the word of God. He wants us to be aware that the true gospel will always be under attack. In every age of human history, there are going to be... The devil's, not, the devil's a lot of things, but he's not original. He continues to use the same tactics, and this is one of them. Uh, we think of attacks from outside. We think of persecution. We think of loss of religious freedom. We think of ridicule from people who don't believe as we do. And yet, the Scriptures have much more to say. It, it talks about those things. It, it tells us those, are th those things are going to happen, but it has much more to say about the attacks from within, from within the church, and in, in the form of false teachings and false teachers. The, the warnings in Jude are not just for us to look out for others. I think they're also for those false teachers themselves. I think just like with all the prophetic books of the Bible, there's a chance that somebody who's on the wrong path will look at this and say, oh my goodness, he's describing me. I need to repent. It's one of the things about God. Until your last breath leaves you, there's always an opportunity for repentance and restoration. Now today, there are Christians who style themselves as watchdogs against heresy. And some of these are some of the, more, uh, some of the most troublesome Christians you'll meet. A lot of them are online these days. They, they go online and they, they, uh, they haunt the, the online presence of any famous preacher or author or Christian figure, and they look for uh, just the smallest little word that they can disagree with or something they can, they can take in the worst possible way to try to make this person look bad. And, and they are not what this is about. I wonder what, what those kinds of people did before there was the internet. I guess they just gave their own pastor trouble and that's it. Maybe, uh, maybe they surfed from church to church. Once they got kicked out of one, they went to another. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Those people have always been. And, and that's not what Jude is encouraging us to be. Those are the kind of people that drive good people away from the faith. Instead, I want you to notice the difference between those people and what Jude says. So, First, he starts out with six analogies to describe the false teachers in verses 12 through 13. He says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." So Jude reveals himself to be very eloquent, a really good writer. Uh, these are very vivid images, but I want to explain the meaning of them. A hidden reef, 
some translations say hidden blemishes, but the, the actual term refers to a reef or you know, body of, of rock or sand that is right under the water's surface. So if you're in a ship and you're headed into harbor, you wouldn't see that and you'd run aground or you'd, you would torpedo yourself on that, on that reef when you're still in the bay or, or the harbor. Um, so what he's talking about is these are, these are false teachers who you don't see them coming and suddenly they've destroyed things and you're not prepared. When he says they're hidden reefs at your love feasts, what is that about? We have to put our, one of, the, one of the things that I think Christians need to understand is the Bible was written for us, but not, it was written, written for us, but not to us. And what I mean by that is it was originally written to people in very different circumstances than us. The early church, when these books were being written, they didn't have church buildings. They didn't have uh, clergy with fancy titles and doctoral degrees. They didn't have a lot of the things you and I take for granted. The church in the early days, because it was sort of an outlaw organization, they met in homes. Occasionally, a church in a city would gather the whole group together in some big place. The church in Jerusalem met at the temple. But most of their business was done in homes. And you can imagine how few people would gather in, in a single home in the ancient world. They would gather in a home, and it would be very informal. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. You know, one or two people would share, maybe three would share. And there would be songs, there would be testimonies, there would be prayers, and then they would share a meal together. I always picture it like our covered dish dinners when I was a kid growing up. I always enjoyed those. I don't know how similar it was to that, but they called it the love feast. And his point is that these are people who will tear up a church and then sit and eat right beside you as if everything's fine. And you need to understand that if you're a person who causes disruption in a church, God is going to punish you. And when he says they eat with you without fear, what he's saying is they are so spiritually ignorant, so spiritually insensible, they can sit there and eat next to you, not even aware of the fact that God's wrath is coming upon them soon. They don't feel any sense of remorse or repentance or godly sorrow. They feast without fear, acting like they're part of the body, but secretly tearing it apart. Second analogy he uses is they're shepherds feeding themselves. That's pretty easy to understand, but again, keep in mind how common uh, a profession shepherding was in that culture. I bet, I bet very few of you actually know anybody who's a working shepherd today, maybe none of you. But in the Middle East, even to this day, it's a common profession, and back then especially. And a shepherd was called to care for his sheep night and day. You paid a man to be a shepherd, he didn't get days off. He was with the sheep all the time. And you held that man responsible for the care of those sheep. These people, these false teachers, are shepherds who don't care about the sheep. Instead, they might eat while the sheep, while the sheep starve, or worse, cook and eat the sheep themselves, to feed themselves. That's the analogy he's using. And it's not an unprecedented analogy in Scripture. If you go back into the, into the prophets, uh, for instance, Ezekiel 34.8, he compares the, the prophets and priests of Israel to shepherds, false shepherds who are abusing the sheep. And that's found in other prophetic books. And then Jesus takes up that theme in John chapter 10. Remember Jesus talking about these other, there are other shepherds out there, but they're hired hands. They don't care anything about the sheep. 
When the wolf or the lion comes, they run because the sheep aren't theirs. But I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No shepherd would lay down his life for a flock of sheep unless those sheep were his. And that's what Jesus is saying. We should look for shepherds in our churches, life group leaders, Bible study teachers, pastors who care about the sheep. Number three, he compares them to waterless clouds. I think all of us can understand that image, but especially those of us who grew up in the country, in either farming or ranching country like I did. And when you grow up in that kind of environment, rain is a constant topic of conversation. I can remember as a kid, we used to have this little country store in this little rural community I grew up in, and I'd go there with my grandpa, and he'd buy me a Dr. Pepper, and there were always these old men sitting in there, just sitting around playing dominoes and chewing the fat. And whenever they'd see each other, they'd always say the same thing. Well, Cecil, when are you going to let it rain? And he'd say, man, if it's up to me, it would rained a long time ago. And then the third guy would say, well, once it does rain, it'll probably flood. I heard that same conversation, I don't know how many times. Now, this, this last year, I, I read a, a book I've been meaning to read for years. It's an old relatively old novel. It was written in the 50s called uh, The Time It Never Rained. The Time It Never Rained. I recommend it. Um, so it's the story of an old rancher in West Texas going through the, the big drought, Texas drought of the 50s. And there's a scene in it that almost brought tears to my eyes because he's a guy who he's not going to take any government uh, subsidies. He's, he's uh, determined to do it on his own. Everybody thinks he's a fool. And he's like, this drought's bound to end someday. And one day he looks outside and he calls his wife. He said, come here, because there's nothing but black clouds everywhere. And the wind is kicked up and he feels the little pitter patter of rain. And he's like, it's finally here. Oh, he's so excited. And then within a few minutes, it all blows away and the rain is gone. And I remember that happening as a kid, although I didn't live through anything like that drought. I remember times when big storms would blow up and we'd think, aha, we're finally going to get that rain. And then it would pass on. And in our day and age, we, we, it made matters worse because then we could watch the news and see that just a, a county over, they got three inches and we got nothing. And so what he's comparing the false teachers to are clouds that give the promise of healing, restoring, providing rain, and then they blow away. A false teacher makes the promise that this is going to be really good. This is going to be exactly what you need and, and makes it go down with eloquence, with innovation. But then you walk away and you realize there's no fruit. It hasn't changed my life for good. Then the fourth one he mentions is fruitless trees. Fruitless trees. Now, um, I don't know how many of you have fruit trees on your property, but the, the point he's making is if, if your fruit tree doesn't bear fruit, then what is it good for? If you just wanted a tree for shade, there are better trees. You bought that, you, you planted that tree because you wanted peaches or you wanted apples or you wanted oranges. If it doesn't bear fruit, it's good for nothing. Think of that story, one of the more uh, curious stories in the Gospels of Jesus coming upon that fig tree on the way into Jerusalem and he, he sees that it has no figs and he curses it. You may you never bear figs again and then it shrivels up. And all, we always look at that and say, boy, why was Jesus so angry at that fig tree? I think Jesus was making a point about the nation of Israel that the nation of Israel no longer bore fruit for God, and so they were under the judgment 
of God. Um, a fruit tree is supposed to bear fruit. What is fruit? Listen, I, I, I need to say this over and over again because we judge pastors by the size of their congregations. That's not the way God judges their their, a, a pastor's ministry. You can build a huge congregation by preaching cheap grace, by preaching a false gospel or a half gospel. You can entertain people. You can tell people what they want to hear. None of that is what produces fruit. Fruit is life change. Fruit is when a person uh, is cruel to his family and becomes patient and gentle. Uh, fruit is when a person is full of fear and worry and anxiety, and suddenly they're full of peace and joy and, and the placid nature of, of, a, of a righteous person. Uh, fruit is when someone holds on to anger and bitterness and resentment, and then one day they, they just walk away and say, I've forgiven you. It's all gone. I, you may not like me, but I love you. That's what fruit looks like. And when you're preaching the gospel, fruit should happen. But these false teachers, they don't produce any fruit. They produce outward signs that impress humans sometimes, but not real fruit. Jude calls them twice dead, uprooted. Um, so twice dead, I think, means they're walking dead in this life because they're separated from God, and that's a walking death. You're living in death, and they're eternally dead in the next life. Uprooted means they're under God's judgment. The fifth analogy he uses is they're like waves of the sea. Now this is something, again, we need to put ourselves in the context of the time. I think a lot of us here, I among them, love to go to the sea. I love to go, I'm mean, even Galveston. Galveston's not the prettiest beach on earth, but if you gave me uh, your, uh, the keys to a condo for the weekend in Galveston, I would jump for joy because I love the coast. The ancient Israelites didn't feel that way. The ancient Israelites were not a seagoing people, and so to them, the sea was a symbol of danger, of chaos. All they knew about the sea is you drown in it, and it blows up storms. So he's comparing them, he's comparing these false teachers to the destructive waves that come in. Think about a rogue wave. Uh, that can topple a ship or a tsunami that can, without any discernible warning, can just sweep a whole village away. These are people who come into our churches and leave chaos behind them. And then number six, he compares them to wandering stars. Remember again that the stars were how ancient people navigated. They didn't have Waze or Apple Maps on their, on their smartphones, right? Uh, they didn't even have maps. So they would say, aha, there's the North Star. I know which way north is. They would, they would navigate by the stars. His point is, if you try to navigate by a star that's moving, you're not going to go where you think you're going. These false teachers gave the illusion of being authoritative, but if you followed their teaching, you wouldn't end up where you intended to go. So his point is that when we fail to spot false teachers, we have, to be, we have to be proactive. We have to be on the lookout for these people because when we fail to spot them and we let them run amok in our churches, the results can be terrible. There can be, there can be the, the destruction of a church. There can be uh, the, 
the damage, the physical damage to human beings who get actually abused by some of these people. Uh, there can be splits in churches, the destruction of the church's unity, spiritual starvation. People can listen to a, a, a false teacher for years and think they're getting the truth and they're dying on the vine. And then probably the worst of all, a church full of lost people who are attracted to a particular preaching, but they never really hear the gospel and so they never repent and they never get saved. Jude is, wants us to be on the lookout for this, to call these things out. And next, an ancient warning, and this is one of the more uh, mysterious parts of the book, so it's going to take some explaining on my part. So verse 14 says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly acts they have committed. To, I'm sorry, to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Now, in the original Greek, that word defiant is ungodly. So, in the original Greek, he uses the word ungodly four times in one verse. His point is, this is serious business. But here's the mysterious part. He quotes from Enoch. Now, probably a lot of Christians don't know who Enoch was. He's mentioned briefly in Genesis 5. Let me sum up what it says about him in Genesis 5. It says, Enoch, it was, it's in Genesis 5 is a chapter that is a genealogy. So it's so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, uh, or begat, if you read the King James Version. So, you know, uh, so-and-so begat Enoch, and Enoch lived 70 years, had other sons and daughters, and then he died. Except it doesn't say that about Enoch. Instead, it says about Enoch, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, for God took him. And that's all it says. One of many places in the Bible where you wish you had more details. Amen. Right? So here's what we believe. We believe God translated him directly into heaven. He's one of two people we know of who never physically died. Y'all know the other one, right? Go ahead. Elijah. Yeah, you can remember it because they're both E names. Enoch and Elijah never died. As far as we know, they're the only two in human history. But that's all we know about Enoch. So where does this quote come from? All right, y'all ready for this? It comes from the book of Enoch. Well, what's the book of Enoch? The book of Enoch is a non-biblical book that was written in the time between the, the Testaments. All right, you ready for a really big word? I, I, I did not make this word up. I had to look it up. It is part of the pseudepigrapha, all right? You've heard of the Apocrypha, right? That's, that's, those are the books that the Roman Catholic Church has that we don't have in their Bibles. Those were written in the time between the Testaments. Pseudepigrapha is a little different. It was written during that same time, but it's called Pseudepigrapha because you've heard the word pseudonym, right? When someone takes a false name when they write a book. Uh, if I wrote, if I wrote a, a, a book claiming to be, uh, well, let's say, I, let's say I wrote a book about First Baptist Church, but I didn't want you all to know I wrote it, wrote it. I could do a pseudonym. I could say I'm John Smith. That's a pseudonym. It's called pseudepigrapha because these were books written with the name of some famous person, but they weren't written by that person. So, for instance, there existed at the time a Gospel of Peter, uh, a Gospel of Judas, a Gospel of Barnabas. We still have access to these te texts today, but they were not written by those people. 
The authors used those famous names to get more publicity, you might say. Well, the book of Enoch is one of those books. Um, it, it, it was written, the reason people did the, these books is not entirely a con game, I would say. I think when you read them, you see what they're trying to do is they're speculating. They're trying to fill in the gaps of the Bible. And they're speculating. They're trying to help people, right? Well, let's, let's say it happened this way. So, for instance, the book of Enoch is about, we talked about this last week, Genesis 6, when it talks about the sons of God fell in love with the daughters of men. And some believe that's a, the story of some fallen angels who uh, cohabited with human women and produced half-angelic, half-human children. Uh, if you weren't here last week, that's going to make you want to watch the video, right? Uh, <laughs> So that's all it says. It just says the sons of God went into the daughters of, of men and, and doesn't give any more details. And so whoever wrote the book of Enoch thought, I think I'm going to kind of explore that for a while. And so it's a kind of a fanciful story of fallen angels and what might have happened. All right. So why isn't it in the Bible? Well, because the rabbis who put together the Old Testament all agreed that the book of Enoch doesn't agree with the Torah, first five books of the Bible. It's, it's, it's heresy. It's not real. It didn't happen. So then why is Jude quoting it? That's the really hard question. So I will say this. Several times in his letters, Paul quotes non-scriptural sources, pagan authors. He'll say, as some of your poets have said, and he'll quote this person or this person that's not a Christian, that's not Scripture. But here Jude is quoting somebody who actually was in the Bible in a non-biblical book. So here's what I believe. Y'all ready for this? Here's what I believe. This is not the Word of God speaking. This is Jeff Berger speaking. I believe Enoch really said this, and it passed down orally over the centuries. We, we forget that most people back then didn't read. And so stories were passed down orally, and that was pretty reliable. You'd sit around the fire, and your grandpa would tell you stories that his grandpa told him, and, and it, they were true. This was a quote that was attributed to Enoch, and because Jude is a, an apostle of God and the brother of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has told him, the whole book of Enoch may not be true, but that quote... Enoch really said that. That's why it's in the book of Jude. This is what I believe. Now, if I've lost you over the past five minutes, or if you disagree with me or what I just said, the point is still the same. The point Jude is making is ungodly teachers will answer not to you or me. They will answer to God. And maybe the reason he quotes Enoch out of all the other people he could quote is to show that even at the very beginning of human history, the seventh person after Adam, even back then, this was a problem. This was something that we had to, be, to watch out for. And then finally, he gives us some ways to spot false teachers. Verse 16, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And you might say, well, why doesn't he just say, check what they say against the Word of God? And you should. But again, as I've tried to say in our study of 1 John and here as well, false teachers aren't always false because what they're teaching is unbiblical. 
Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes their teaching may not be unbiblical. It's their character that's unbiblical. And that's just as bad. Uh, wait, Jeff, are you saying that every preacher's got to be perfect? Well, no, because I would have to resign. But I'm saying that if you're following a man who isn't truly following Jesus, it doesn't matter how true his teaching is, he's going to lead you astray. Bad things are going to happen. So here's the warning signs he gives us. None of these are really related directly to doctrine. First, he says, watch out for men who are grumblers and fault finders. Women, too. For, for that matter, who are grumblers and fault finders. Now, I would love to say that what he's saying here is anybody who is a complainer, you need to get, at, get them out of your church. I would love to say that, really. It would make my life a whole lot easier. Not that we have that many complainers, but you know what I mean. A little of that goes a long way. But that's not what he's saying. I wish it was for my own selfish sake. He's using terms, I believe, that refer to the people who rebelled against Moses in the desert. And remember, last week, he referred to one of them by name. He referred to Dathan, uh, Dathan or Korah. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram stood up to Moses and said, uh, who, who made this man? Who made this man king over us? Let's, let's follow me and we'll go back to Egypt. Grumblers and fault finders who... Left to their own devices, God's people would be able to interpret God's word for themselves and they would do their best to follow him faithfully. These people come up and say, you don't want to do that. They're like the serpent in the garden. Do you really believe that? Because I've got something better. I've got a better plan. They take God's word, which let's face it, there's a lot in it that's confusing, but the important stuff is all crystal clear. Clear enough that I as a nine-year-old boy understood the gospel well enough to get saved. They take that beautiful message, simple enough for a child to understand, and they twist it because they have their own agenda. They think they've got a better plan than the plan of God. So watch out. Watch out when people take the clear teaching of God's Word, God's clear will, and they distort it into something else. And the second uh, warning sign to watch out for, he says, they follow their own evil desires. And, and that... that encompasses a whole lot of ground, doesn't it? Because think of all the evil desires that can motivate a person. Specifically leaders, we see in the scriptures and in our own lives, we see spiritual leaders, some of them very, very gifted, some of them very, very successful from an earthly standpoint, who have uh, been revealed to be people of greed, who are motivated by a desire for earthly wealth, uh, who uh, who stole their church's money or, or misused their church's funds to enrich themselves. That's one evil desire that can motivate a leader. Obviously, the sexual temptation can motivate a spiritual leader. I, there is something about that position of power that is attractive to people, that is attractive to the opposite sex. Uh, and especially when that other person is struggling and stumbling and you're this person of authority who presents an image of compassion and who seems to be a, a figure of stability in, in her rocky world and you can take advantage of that to take advantage of her. And then there's also the evil desire of selfish ambition and that desire for fame, that desire for uh, the spotlight just as a, a word of testimony, 
When I first got here, we read together, our staff and I, we read this book called God Dreams. And, and we were trying to decide what is our vision as a staff for the church? Where do we think God is taking our church in the near future? And it, it said there, there are six different kinds of visions you can have, and it listed them out. And one of them was that you can have a vision to multiply the platform of your leader. That can be the vision of your church. Your church's vision can be, we're gotta do whatever we can to get our preacher's message out to as many people as possible. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe, I'm, maybe this is judgmental of me, but I read that and I thought, in fact, I said to the staff, I said, that's the one out of these six that we're not gonna do. And the reason I said that is because I knew how it appealed to my own flesh. I read that and I thought, wow, it'd be great if a whole church said, let's do whatever we can to put old Jeff's message out to as many people as possible. Let's buy time on the radio and let's, let's advertise and let's put his face on billboards. And I knew how that appealed to my flesh. And I thought, I don't know that there's any human being who wouldn't be seduced by that. And I see it happen. I see, I see ministers who probably started off with nothing but the right heart and love for Jesus, and they get seduced by that, that celebrity culture and what it brings to them, the notoriety it brings, the validation it brings. False teachers follow evil desires. Then there's another warning sign. He says they're boastful. They're boastful. This is why I say we, got, we have to look, we have to insist on humility among our spiritual leaders, both on a lay level and on the clergy level. And that's hard for us because that's not true of any other domain of leadership. If you work for a major company and you're hiring a CEO, I guarantee you one of the qualities you're looking for is not humility. When the Aggies, not to pick on the Aggies, but when the Aggies try to replace their $77 million man, <laughs> they're probably not looking for a humble man to replace him, although it probably wouldn't hurt. But humility doesn't make you a great football coach. It doesn't make you a great CEO. It doesn't make you... But you have to insist on humility in your spiritual leaders. And remember what humility is. Humility isn't a self-loathing where you're just... You think you're no good. That's, that's not of God. That's the devil right there. Humility is where you're not out to promote yourself. When you see boastfulness, when you see boastfulness in a leader, run away. Confront first. If they won't listen to your, your confrontation, your rebuke, then run away because that's not someone you should follow. I've said it before. I, I hear too many times when I, when I talk to people about, uh, in other towns about their pastor. Oh yeah, brother so-and-so, boy, he's, he's something else, but he sure does preach well. And I think, hmm, what does something else mean? We need to get down to the bottom of that. If he's just a character, that's one thing. If he's eccentric, that's fine. But yeah, watch out for the boastful man. And then finally, the warning sign is he flatters others. They flatter others for their own advantage. And really what he's talking about there is favoritism. Because who would a leader flatter for their own advantage but someone who could benefit them? You're not flattering a, a, a widow woman who just needs someone to love them and, and support them and, and preach the word to them, you're flattering the guy who has money, 
the, the woman who has money. You're, you're flattering the powerful person who could benefit you. So when he says they flatter others for their own advantage, what he's saying is your leaders need to be people who treat all of their flock the same. From the, the little child to the, the person who's constantly in ill health to the person who can never hold a job to the, to the person who runs a company. They all need to get the same level of care and concern and prayer and treatment from their pastor. And that's not common. But we, as God's people, can insist on it among our leaders, and we must. So in closing, let me just say, think about Jesus. Think about Jesus and think about the kind of leader he was. Did Jesus ever grumble about God's plan? He complained about the, his disciples every once in a while. Are you so dull? He said at one point. He certainly complained about the spiritual leaders of Israel because he wanted God's people to know, don't fall for their, their teaching. It's, it's leading you astray. But he never grumbled about God's plan. In fact, in the key moment when he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, face down on the ground, what did he say? He said, your will be done. Not my own, but your will be done. He didn't follow evil desires. This is hard for us to understand, but Jesus had desires in his heart like any other human. And some of those desires, if he had followed them, would have led him into sin. But he always chose the right. He always put us before himself. Jesus never boasted. One of the things you'll notice about the scriptures is how many times Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. And he's talking about healings. He's talking about Hey, I think you're the Messiah. Yes, you're right. Don't tell anybody. Jesus was not boastful. And then he didn't flatter the wealthy or the powerful. Boy, it would have made his life so much easier if he had. But he associated with the lowly. One of the, one of the things they held against him the most was the company he kept. This is the example that we should strive for in our leaders. And you say, well, we're never going to find anybody just like that. Of course not. There's only one Jesus. This is my point, though. Whoever is leading you spiritually, you better be able to tell that that's what they're striving for. And hopefully they're honest when they don't reach it. Hopefully they're humble enough to say, here's where I'm falling short, because we're all fellow uh, travelers on the road to righteousness. But can you tell that that's what they're striving for? That's what, we, that's what God's church deserves. That's what God Himself deserves. Watch out for false teachers. When you spot these things, I think we should have enough charity in our heart, enough grace to confront that person in love. But if they don't receive your rebuke, then you might need to find another church or another group. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I, I, this is not a pleasant subject, and even Jude didn't want to write about it, but he knew how important it was. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, have grace in our hearts when we look upon our spiritual leaders, that we would support and pray for them and encourage them in every way. But when we see warning signs, help us to have the courage to confront. Lord, give us discernment so that we will not be taken in. Revive your church. Lord, in these days, what we need is revival so that uh, we would embrace what is true so that we would represent you well. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.